Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and I'd like to begin this week, for anyone who's joined us more recently, by going over the main reason for why I do these videos. My major goal here is to help Sunday school teachers, or parents, or anybody who's striving to teach lessons from the scriptures. There is a feeling that you get when you know you've taught an effective and impactful lesson. Well, I want you as a teacher or a parent to feel that feeling more often, because I know teaching is hard, especially in the current screen addicted world that we live in now. It's very, very challenging. So I hope with my teaching experience to help make that process a little bit easier for you, a little less time consuming and overwhelming. I know that I've received a lot of help from others throughout the years, and I hope to be able to pass some of that on to all of you. Also, I know there are many of you out there who join us each week for the Scripture Insights uh, to enrich your personal Scripture study and your own understanding of the Scriptures. So grateful to have you here with us as well, and I hope that these lessons bless you in that. Very grateful that I get the chance each week to share my love of the Scriptures with you all. So thank you so much for joining me. And this week, we're going to finish our study of the book of Romans, covering chapters 7 through 16. So this is, this is a big week. It's a big chunk of chapters with lots of ideas. So if you're ready, grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. For an icebreaker, we're going to test your knowledge of American wars. For those of you in other countries, uh, you could do the same kind of activity with well-known wars in your nation's history. I'm going to give you the dates, and then you tell me what war was fought during those years. And you could do this as a quick handout activity uh, by having them match the years with the war, or you could just shout them out and see who can name the war that was fought during that time period. But here we go. Number one, 1756 to 1763. The answer is G, the French and Indian Wars. 1775 to 1783, E, the American Revolution. Number three, 1861 to 1865, A, the Civil War. Number four, 1914 to 1918, B, World War One. Number five, 1939 to 1945, F, World War Two. Number six, 1960 to 1975, D, Vietnam. And then uh, number seven, 2001 to 2021. And that answer would be uh, C, the war on terrorism or the, the war in Afghanistan. Well, sadly, War has been a major part of not only our nation's history, but our world's history. Conflict and battle have raged on earth since the beginning of time. Paul lived in a time of war as well in ancient Rome, and he drew on the imagery of war to teach us an important lesson about mortality. In Romans 7 verses 14 through 25, Paul is going to describe a different kind of war, perhaps the greatest conflict mankind has ever faced. But who's fighting in this war? That's the big question. What are the two sides that are facing off? And I suggest that you read these verses to your students as a teacher so that you can practice what words to emphasize and, and maybe add some clarification as you go. Because it does start to sound a little like a Dr. Seuss book. But here is how I would read it. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, 
That I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Interesting, huh? What war is Paul talking about here? How would you describe it? It's the war with ourselves, or the war with self. The greatest conflict of all history, because we all fight it. And it's been raging in the souls of all mortal beings, from Adam and Eve down to you and I. Some rhetorical questions to consider asking here. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like Paul here, what he's describing? Have you ever felt that inner struggle, that conflict within yourself? Have you ever made a New Year's resolution that you didn't end up keeping? Have you ever consciously done something that you knew you would regret later? Have you ever given in to temptation and shortly afterwards thought, why did I do that? I didn't want to do it, but I did it anyway. Have you ever felt like there was this negative part of yourself that you wished you could just get rid of? I imagine we can all relate to Paul's statement there in verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. Nephi's going to say the same thing. These were some of the greatest spirits to ever live. Suppose it's a little comforting to know that even they felt that inner struggle. King Benjamin probably gave us the best terms for describing the two sides or the warring factions that we find within every human soul. Paul is going to use the terms flesh and spirit here in Romans. But I prefer the two terms that we find in Mosiah 319. What are they? They are the natural man and the saint. The natural man is that mortal, fleshy part of us that's motivated by uh, appetites and the senses of the flesh. The saint is the spiritual side, the part that loves God, that the part of our conscience that encourages us to, to choose the right. <laughs> and, and I want to make sure that we understand uh, the term natural man really well here. So let me give you a few examples of, of what I'm talking about. I'm going to give you some scenarios, and I want you to ask yourself what you feel would be the most natural way to react in these situations. What would the average person do? What would come easily and naturally? when a car cuts you off on the freeway. Think about that scenario. How, how does your natural man react? Somebody accidentally drops a $20 bill as they walk by you. A friend or a coworker offers to show you pornography that they have on their phone. Or you see somebody whose clothing or home or possessions are not as nice as yours. Now, those probably aren't difficult questions to answer. The natural man gets angry on the freeway. It takes the money, indulges in lustful things, and pridefully thinks they're better than other people because they have more. That's the natural man or woman that's inside of us. But that's not all we're made of. We don't have to act in those ways because... There's another part that God has placed within us all, the saint or the spirit. The saint is the eternal spiritual part of us that wishes to please God and do what's right. It's the more measured side of ourselves, the side that can look outside of itself, consider the long term, and can sympathize and consider the needs of others or the greater good. It's the side that can't help but feel a sense of right and wrong. 
Now, these two sides of ourselves, they don't always get along. And they can be the, the source of great inner struggle. Sometimes this struggle is depicted humorously in cartoons with a devil on the one shoulder and an angel on the other. Now that, that's, that's the war that we've got going on inside of our minds. What's a mortal to do then? How do we win this war with ourselves? How do we beat down the natural man and, and allow the, the true saint, the spirit, the eternal part of ourselves reign and have control? Well, Paul asks a key question at the end of those verses that we just read. He asks, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Yet, in this war, do we have any great generals that we could turn to? Somebody that we could trust to help us to win the war? A George Washington, a Lord Nelson, an Eisenhower to rely on? You can see the answer to his question in verse 25. And also in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. Who can deliver us? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. All right, so... So we, we, we can't do it alone. We can't fight and win against our own sins all by ourselves. Christ comes in and defeats them. But, but what have we got to do? We've got to choose Christ as our general. He's got an interesting title in the scriptures sometimes. Sometimes he's referred to as the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord of armies to help us to win our personal battles with the flesh. So we've got to rely on his teachings, on his atonement, his example, and seek to obey his words. This is going to help us to put the natural man in its place, into subjection. So when Satan, the adversary, comes along and wins a battle or two against us and starts to establish a beachhead in our lives, we turn to Christ. We repent, and, and he comes in and defeats our sins and overthrows our offenses. But, but that's not all. We've got another general out there, a master strategist, a tactician. He always seems to know where the enemy is, where the minefields are hidden, the possible dangers, and he warns us of them and guides us through the battlefield safely. Who is this other general? We can find them in chapter 8, verse 1, 8, verse 4, and 8, 26. Who am I referring to here? There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, capital S, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And then verse 26, uh, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So it's the Spirit that can help us. The more we listen to His instructions, the more we trust His maneuvers, the more we act on his guidance, the stronger our saint will be. We'll push the enemy back and subdue the natural man. As C.S. Lewis expressed what, what he imagined God would say to us, Give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your talents and money, and so much of your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me 
and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself, and in exchange I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. Also reminds me of the story of the two wolves. Maybe you're familiar with this one. An old Cherokee is, is teaching his grandson about life, and he says, A fight is going on inside of me. It's a terrible fight, and it is between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. The other is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside you and inside every other person, too. The grandson thinks about this for a minute and then asks his grandfather, Which wolf will win? The old Cherokee simply replied, The one you feed. So as we turn to Christ, rely on His teachings and atonement, and heed the promptings of the Spirit, we feed the good wolf, and we starve the bad wolf. And in that way, we can win the war. Well, when you win a war, there are spoils or rewards that you gain for winning. You probably heard the phrase, to the victor goes the spoils. Well, what are the spoils of this war? Why is it a war worth fighting? The rest of chapter 8 is going to tell us about them, and there are quite a few. I think I've identified at least 18 in chapter 8 alone. But for time's sake, I'm just going to zero in on a handful of my favorites. And I might present this as a pick and ponder activity. Give your students the freedom to choose any of the following references and ponder how that particular verse or verses offers hope and encouragement to fight on, to fight that natural man and beat him down. In my opinion, these are some of the most beautiful and inspiring verses in all of Scripture. Because life can be difficult. This war with ourselves isn't easy. The, what's the most famous quote that we hear about war? War is hell. And, and life can sometimes feel like that. It can be very, very hard. But morale is, is vital to winning a war. Well, here, God has got some incredible morale-boosting promises. Promises to his faithful soldiers that choose to fight the natural man. Seriously, these are verses that can help you get through almost anything. My favorite verse of Scripture is in here. And that's saying something because I love the Scriptures. If you were to banish me to a desert island and I could only take one verse with me, one of these verses in Romans 8 would be it. So when I teach the youth, just for fun and to encourage sharing, I tell them that if they happen to pick my favorite verse and share their thoughts on it, then I'll give them a treat. That's not to say that it is the best verse on the list. It's, it's just my favorite verse. So here we go. Uh, from chapter 8, verse 15. One of the spoils of victory, we get to call God Abba, or Father. When we conquer the self, we gain a new kind of relationship with our Father in heaven. He becomes Abba to us. Abba is the word for Father framed by the mouths of infants and children. The closest English translation would be Daddy or Papa. As we seek to conquer the natural man, we gain a closeness with the Father that, that's very similar. That loving, cherishing, comfortable type of relationship. My, my children are grown now, and it's kind of sad that I'm no longer daddy anymore. Just dad. But I will always cherish the memories of the days when my children called me by that title. I always loved coming home from work to cries of, Daddy, Daddy, and my children running to me and, and grabbing me around the knees. Or when I would say goodnight to my daughter and she'd reach her little arms around my neck and 
give me a kiss on the cheek and say, I love you, Daddy. We can have that same kind of relationship with God. Verse 18, My sufferings will not be worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in me. Now that's quite a statement if you consider the source. This is not just a mere theological speculation on the subject. Paul was a man who knew something about suffering and adversity. You could argue that besides Jesus, nobody suffers more than Paul in the New Testament. You get a sense of that suffering in 2 Corinthians 11, 23-27. But he's also a man who knew what heaven was like. Uh, he tells us that he has a vision of it in 2 Corinthians 12, 1-4. So he had seen and experienced both the heights of heaven and the depths of suffering. And what was his conclusion? No comparison. Heaven is that much greater, better than any suffering we can face. Maybe we place too much emphasis on our current suffering because we don't fully realize the promise of the future reward. Yes, this life can be excruciatingly painful, and the depths of human suffering are seemingly bottomless. But our Father in heaven runs quite the recovery route. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 4, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. And Paul's actually going to quote that verse in 1 Corinthians. Simply put, enduring this war will be worth it which idea leads right into the next spoil that I want to focus on. And this is my favorite verse of all Scripture. Romans 8, 28. He will make all things work together for my good. If you want to assure a happy ending to your story, just love God and the rest will take care of itself. He can make goods out of all all of our bads. He's able to take any negative in your life. And you might have a lot. You could probably list them very easily. I know I've done this thing before, but if you went up to God and said, well, God, in my life, I've got this negative and this one and this one and this. Christ comes along and he says, just love me and my father. And I promise you that at some future point, by the power of my cross, I will cross all of your negatives and make them positives. The story of Joseph of Egypt in the Old Testament is probably the best case study of this principle. He had so many negatives in his life for years and years. And then finally, after persevering and loving God throughout it all, God turned all of it around and made it hugely positive. He'll do the same for us. Just think of all the things that he can turn for our good. Not just our, our sufferings, but our mistakes, our weaknesses, our sorrows, our tragedies. Even if we can't see it now, somewhere down the road, we're going to look back at these negatives in our lives and we'll see, with an eternal perspective, the good that God made out of them. Perhaps you've had an experience like that already, where in the midst of some trial, you couldn't see any earthly good that could come from it. But later in life, in hindsight, you find the good. Junior high was an experience like that for me. There were times on my mission that felt like that. Difficult family experiences have been like that. In the moment, sometimes I've wondered what earthly good could ever come of them. But later, I look back and I see the beauty and the blessing in them. God makes it good. C.S. Lewis spoke of this phenomenon in this very eloquently expressed passage from his book, The Great Divorce, one of my favorite quotes. You cannot in your present state understand eternity, but you can get some likeness of it if you say that both good and evil, when they are full grown, become retrospective. All this earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. All their life on earth, too, 
will then be seen by the damned to have been hell. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me have but this and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of the sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that is why, at the end of all things, when the sun rises here in heaven and the twilight turns to blackness down there in hell, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. Ah, the saved, what happens to them is best described as the opposite of a mirage. What seemed when they entered into it to be the veil of misery turns out when they look back to have been a well. And where present experience saw only salt deserts, memory truthfully records that the pools were full of water. So, so please, all of my friends out there, from the bottom of my heart, remember, all things work together for good to them that love God. That's the kind of statement that can guide an individual for a lifetime and get them through almost anything. I know it's done that for me. All right, our next one here, 835 and verses 38 through 39. Here, Paul asks us to consider a question. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Or in other words, what has the power to get between you and the love of our Father in heaven and his Son, Jesus Christ. We may be tempted at times by the adversary to think that we're not loved by God based on trials that we're experiencing or unworthy actions that we've taken or because of offenses that have been committed against us. But in truth, what can separate us from his love? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can come between you and his love. So what happens to us in this life does not change the love our Father in heaven has for us in any matter. And that's nice to know. I'd argue that really there is only one thing that has the power to separate us from God, and that's ourselves. The only thing to get between us and him would be our own will. Therefore, if we immerse ourselves in his love, we can let that love be a motivation to conquer every unworthy thing in our lives. Now there, there are plenty of other spoils of victory in this chapter that you could focus on. And here are a few more, just in short. 8.6. Life and peace. Verse 11. He quickens our mortal body by his spirit. Verse 17. We become joint heirs with Christ. That means that everything God has given to Christ will be ours as well. We too will be resurrected with a glorious body, just like he has. We will know what he knows, be able to do what he does. We'll have his power, his attributes, his happiness, his love. That's quite a promise. In verse 27, he makes intercession for the saints. He takes our sins upon himself. And in verse 32, he freely gives us all things. So much to look forward to here. D does that list boost your war morale at all? I hope so. 
So the truth, a bit of a summary here. There are two parts of my soul that are at war with each other, my natural man and my saint. If I can defeat my natural man with the help of God, Christ, and the Holy Ghost, then all things will work together for my good, and God will freely give me all things. So like in the scriptures, what do you feel has been the most important thing the Spirit wanted you to hear today from this lesson? Well, I'd like to conclude with Romans 8.37 because I feel it fits so well with our theme of the war with self. And it includes one final brief activity. Can you name these famous conquerors just by looking at these pictures or paintings? Who are they? These, these are some of the greatest conquerors in history. So who's this? Napoleon Bonaparte. And this, Genghis Khan. How about this one? Alexander the Great. And next, this would be Cortez. And then finally, this last one. It's a tough one. Got to put in. Got to put in a really challenging one here. That would be Tamerlane, right? Now these men conquered vast expanses of land, secured countless victories, and dominated hundreds of thousands of people. But look what Paul says about winning this war with ourselves. It says in verse thirty-seven. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The greatest battle you will ever fight will be with yourself. But if you can defeat yourself, your natural man, if you can win that war, you will have done something greater than Genghis Khan or Napoleon Bonaparte or Alexander the Great. You'll be more than a conqueror. Please remember that you're not fighting this war alone. You have the universe's most powerful ally. We do it through him that loved us. Or through Jesus Christ, we will conquer. As it says in Romans 8.31 with the JST, If God be for us, who can prevail against us? Turn to Christ, and I promise you that all the promises of Romans chapter 8 will be yours. All right, moving on. I wouldn't do much with chapters 9 through 11 this week. There's some good things in there, like the doctrine of foreordination. But with all the other great messages that you can share this week, I feel that there's other places that are more relevant. And I would introduce the final chapters with the following icebreaker. I'd ask them, does anybody know what it takes to become a saint in the Catholic Church? The answer, amongst a few other things, is to perform two miracles. And then I usually like to add a small pause after that and add, after you've already died. Right? And then I ask, what does it take to become a saint in the Church of Jesus Christ? And allow some of them to share their thoughts. In the remaining chapters of Romans, Paul's going to teach us what it means to be a saint or, as it says in Romans 12, in the chapter heading, to live as becometh saints. In the Catholic and other Christian churches, sainthood is reserved for only the highest and most revered members of that faith. But in the restored Church of Jesus Christ, we are all meant to be saints. It's in the name of our church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Remember the war with self. The more we beat back our natural man, the more of a saint we will become. So now Romans chapter 12 through 16, they're going to teach us how to do just that. Here are some more war tactics for us to consider. 
And a bit of a heads up here, becoming a true saint in the Church of Jesus Christ is a lot more involved than just performing two measly posthumous miracles. And you could cover a large amount of material here by approaching this as a crossword puzzle activity. Each question highlights a phrase that describes what it means to live as becometh a saint. I would also instruct my students to mark these phrases in their scriptures with a common color under the label, How to Become a Saint. So here are the answers and the phrases. Three across. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. Romans 12, 2. And I like to start with that one because it's such a good description. I love the parallelism and the rhyming of those two words. We are not meant to conform to the values and opinions and actions of the rest of the world. No, Christ intends to transform us into something different, greater, and more holy to become saints. We want to be transformed, not conformed. For a cross, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, from Romans 13, 14. Six a cross, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love from Romans 12.10. Seven across, present your bodies a living sacrifice from Romans 12.1. Number nine across, live peaceably with all men. Romans 12.18. Ten across, let us walk honestly. Romans 13.13. 13. 11 across. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Romans 15 1. 12 across. Not slothful in business. Romans 12 11. Now the down clues. Uh, one down that ye may abound in hope. Romans 15.13 Two down. Given to hospitality. Romans 12.13 Five down. That ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. Romans 15.14 Eight down. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave unto that which is good. Romans 12.9 And 10 down, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. A plea for humility. Uh, Romans 12.3 aren't, aren't those all great phrases? Very inspiring. Well, to liken the scriptures, once my students had completed that activity, I'd invite them to look back over that list and one Pick just one of the requirements that they feel is vital for a saint to possess. And then two, ponder a specific action that a person could take that, that week that would show that they were striving to live that quality. For example, if they picked to bear the infirmities of the week, a saint could visit an elderly grandparent, serve someone in their neighborhood that's sick, or they could post a spiritual message on social media. Just encourage them to brainstorm how that saintly quality appears in our day. And then either call on some of them to share or have them turn to a neighbor and share. And if you're willing to indulge me here, I'd love to just share two of my favorite phrases from that list. From chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, the reason that this would be a particularly effective exhortation for a Jewish audience is that they were accustomed to making animal sacrifices. So that's an idea that would easily resonate with this group. But Paul suggests that they start making a different kind of sacrifice. Offer their own bodies, 
not, not talking about martyrdom here, but their living bodies as a living sacrifice. To connect with the war with self theme, we sacrifice our natural man to him. So how does one do that? Well, I can sacrifice the eyes of my natural man by only watching or looking at things that are virtuous, lovely, of good report, or praiseworthy. I can sacrifice the ears of my natural man by giving up the things of the world to listen to the prophets, or worthy music, or the still small voice of the Spirit. I could sacrifice my feet by walking them to church, or on a mission, or to perform some act of service. But probably most of all, I could sacrifice the heart of my natural man and turn it over to God and give him my devotion, my loyalty, my will. As Neil A. Maxwell once said, In conclusion, the submission of one's will is really the only uniquely personal thing we have to place on God's altar. The many other things we give, brothers and sisters, are actually the things he has already given or loaned to us. However, when you and I finally submit ourselves by letting our individual wills be swallowed up in God's will, then we are really giving something to Him. It's the only possession which is truly ours to give. And then from chapter 13, verse 14, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh. Really like the way that's worded. Putting on Christ. Sometimes we might wonder how we're supposed to live a certain way when we don't really feel like doing it. We might ask things like, how am I supposed to help other people when I don't really feel like helping other people? How am I supposed to forgive my enemies when all I can feel is anger or hatred? How can I have the spirit of sacrifice when I don't really feel like making those sacrifices? I think Paul's advice would be, stop worrying about your feelings. Put on Christ like a mask and pretend you're him. Do, do the things that you think he would do and forget about the feelings. A modern expression of this advice might be, fake it till you make it. And I believe that an interesting thing happens when we do that. Eventually, the feelings do come, and a Christ-like character is forged. It's like, it's like the time you don't really want to go to the service project, but you do anyway. And by the time you're done, you're glad that you did the service. Have you ever had that experience? Your feelings changed because you acted. It's like the fairy tale where there's the man whose face is, is badly burned, and so he wears a mask and never takes it off. And then he meets the princess who finally convinces him that she doesn't care how he looks, but loves him for who he is. And so he takes off the mask, and miraculously, he's worn the mask for so long that it has transformed his face to match. The same kind of thing can happen to us. The more we put on Christ, the more we begin to reflect him in spirit and character. So if you don't feel like a Christ-like person, then I would say, just keep putting on the mask daily. Put on Christ. And one day, you'll take off the mask, and under it, your face will have transformed into his. You will have received his image in your countenance, like Alma says in Alma 519. Well, we are all meant to be saints in Christ's church, Latter-day Saints. And a saint, according to the New Testament definition of the word, is someone who is holy or set apart for a sacred purpose. Well, hopefully that's us. We're meant to be holy people that have been set apart to be different from the rest of the world. The things that Paul just taught us in these chapters help us to know what it means to become a true saint. We're not meant to conform, but transform. Well, one more lesson idea that I think you'll really enjoy 
that comes from Romans chapter 14. If we're to truly be saints, then here is one more additional quality or characteristic that we've got to have. Paul feels so strongly about it that he dedicates an entire chapter and more to this one particular idea. Let's see what it is. And here's a really simple icebreaker that you can do for this section. It's just a brain teaser, a, a problem. See who can figure it out first. If I were to give you these two views of a specific three-dimensional shape, can you figure out what this object would look like from a top view? So this is what the object would look like from a front view and then from a side view. But what would it look like from the top? And the answer would be this, a circular shape. That's the only way that you could make that side and front view work. It's kind of fun. So now in this final portion of this week's study, we're going to look for the solution to another kind of problem. The members of the church in Rome are having a problem. Can you find what it is in chapter 14, verse 1? Now, they might answer with saying they are weak in the faith. And if they do that, just explain that Paul is referring to new converts that are still developing their testimonies and that they should receive them and help them. But the real problem is in the next line. The way they are receiving them is causing something. What is it? Doubtful disputations. They're arguing about how gospel principles are to be lived. Paul's going to tell us what some of those issues are in verses 2 and 5. Verse 2, For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs, or vegetables. And then verse 5, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Well, what's this all about? These problems stem from the conflict we've talked about before between Jewish members and Gentile members. Many of the Jewish Christians uh, felt that the Gentile Christians needed to live their Jewish customs. Jews had dietary restrictions, including not eating pork. And some even took it further by not eating any meat at all. Well, the Gentiles didn't have those dietary restrictions. Also, the Jewish members were still observing certain Jewish holidays and feasts, while the Gentiles didn't have those same holidays. Those, those days didn't mean anything to them. And I'm sure there were other issues, but Paul's going to use those two as examples. And they're good representative examples because in one instance, you have a group of people who feels like the other group of people are doing something that they should not be doing, eating meat. And the other is an example where one group feels like the other group is not doing something that they should be doing, observing the Jewish holidays. So these differences are causing doubtful disputations between the two groups. So here's where it gets interesting. You can ask, are there things like that in the church today? Latter-day doubtful disputations. Gospel principles or standards that different members of the church interpret or live differently. And then give them a few examples to get them going. And there's lots of them. Since we live in a church that runs mainly by the I give them correct principles and they govern themselves policy, you can expect there to be some disagreements as to what living a certain standard or commandment exactly looks like. For example... Sabbath day observance. Some members may feel that it's not okay to watch a football game on Sunday. It's the Sabbath. While the other group feels like, hey, what's the big deal? I attend church. I don't go shopping. So what if I watch a game with my family? Something that brings us together. Some members may feel that a man having a beard is not appropriate. We're supposed to reflect the appearance of the brethren. It's a rule at BYU. It's a rule for seminary teachers. While somebody else might say, well, what's the big deal? Brigham Young had a beard. Growing a beard doesn't have the same connotation that it did 
back in the 60s when that the appearance of the brethren kind of changed. Paying tithing. Do you pay on your gross or your net income? Political affiliations and issues. How can a good member of the church support that particular candidate or issue? There must be something wrong with them. Modesty issues. Some may feel that an, an endowed member shouldn't wear shorts anymore. Or others may feel that if they're long enough, no big deal. Media choices. Some may think that certain movies are inappropriate to watch, while others feel those same movies fall within our standards. I remember when I was younger, drinking caffeinated sodas was an issue like this. Good members of the church don't drink Coke. Well, now I believe that standard has been more clearly delineated by the brethren. And I also remember when I was younger, that playing cards weren't allowed in our home. But then I'd go to some of my friends' houses and I remember being a little worried when I saw their families using playing cards. I'd always been taught that you weren't supposed to do that. So, so I, I'm sure there are many other examples of areas like this uh, with gospel standards. Now, when you go through these kinds of things with your classes, be sure to do it with a sense of humor, right? With a smile on your face. We don't, you don't want this to turn into a doubtful disputation within your class. We're just kind of poking fun at some of those issues and ideas that, that members of the church view differently. So do it with some humor, and that should diffuse the tension a little. Now, we're not talking about fundamental gospel standards here, right, or absolute commandments that have been unambiguously clarified by the prophets. I've done this activity with the youth before, and sometimes they'll mention issues that are clearly stated commandments or standards that are found in For the Strength of Youth pamphlet. And I might have to gently remind them that, oh, no, no, that, that wouldn't be an example of this because that has been clarified by a prophet. For example, if somebody mentions something like vaping or pornography or paying tithing, those aren't matters of govern yourselves kind of standards. We're not going to use this idea to dismiss direct prophetic counsel or commandment. But there are quite a few areas where Clear delineations have not been laid out in strict black and white. The brethren say, follow the Spirit and govern yourselves. But sometimes these differences of application can cause problems between members. It might lead them to do one of two things to the other side. According to verse 3, what two unsaint-like things are these two groups of people doing to each other? Can you see it there in verse 3? Despising and judging. So you have despisers and judgers. Now, now this is really fun, but again, be sure to keep it light because these can be sensitive issues. So you split your class down the middle and say, you guys on this half of the classroom, you are the football-watching, coke-drinking, beard-growing, shorts-wearing card players. And you, on the other half of the classroom, you're the opposite. You don't do any of those things. Now, you on the second side, which of Paul's two words describe how you are tempted to treat the other side that's doing all these things? You judge them. They're not doing what they should, or they're doing something that they shouldn't. Any good member of the church wouldn't do that. You are the judges. And you on the first side, which of Paul's two words described how you are tempted to treat the other side? You despise them. You think, goody goodies, who do they think they are? Always taking things too far, looking beyond the mark. They think they're so much better than everybody else. You are the despisers. And Paul has some advice for both groups. So you send each group to the following verses to find Paul's message for them, and then ask if anybody would like to summarize what they learned with the class. So judges are going to read chapter 14, verses 10 through 13, and despisers are going to read chapter 14, verse 15, and verses 20 through 21. So what does Paul have to say to them? To the judges, 
But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. So Paul's advice, stop judging. We will all give an account of ourselves to God. God will judge them. It's not your place. And, and when we become judgmental, we might place a stumbling block for them. They may get tempted to, to be offended. They may feel unwelcome. They might begin to feel contempt for you. And that's not the kind of spirit we want permeating our congregations, is it? Now, when Paul says that, you can just hear the other side shouting out, Hey, yeah, stop judging us, you judgy judgers. But Paul turns to them now and he says, Not so fast. I've got a message for you too. And what does Paul say to the despisers? Verse 15, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Verse 20, For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure. But it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. So Paul's advice to the despisers is kind of a harder pill to swallow. If you know that your actions are grieving other people, other members, then you're not being very charitable. So for the sake of peace, try not to do those things that knowingly offend other people. Now, I know that's a hard one for us to say because we, we think, hey, it's my right to do these things. I have a right to act the way I want. I'm not going to change my actions just to please somebody else. If they're offended, that's their problem. But Paul jumps in and he says, there's a better way here. That's not charitable. You are knowingly offending people. So if you know that somebody's agreed with your actions, for the sake of peace, is it really that big of a deal to give it up? I'll give you an example of this from my own experience. I remember teaching a gospel doctrine class, and all throughout the lesson, I'd refer to the Doctrine and Covenants as the D&C. You know, please turn to D&C section 10. After the class, a brother came up to me and he said, you know, you're never supposed to use the term D&C. You should always say Doctrine and Covenants when you teach. And, and I'll tell you what, honestly, in my mind, I was thinking, that's all you got out of the lesson today? Really? <laughs> now, I was polite to him in the moment, but in my mind, my natural man was taking over, and I was thinking, who are you to tell me how to teach? I can talk the way I want. And if I wanted to, I could really have become a despiser the next week and continued to use and maybe even emphasize the term DNC. You know, I could have said, all right, let's turn to DNC section 76 while looking right at it. But what would that have done? That would have caused doubtful disputations and would not have been a very charitable thing for me to do. So in that situation, what should I do? For the sake of peace, because I knew that it was offending that brother, well, stop saying it. Right? Was it really that big of a deal to make that little change, to say doctrine and covenants every time? Not really. So that's what I decided to do. And I believe that helped to maintain a spirit of peace. Now, somebody might argue and say, but, but wait a second, he was judging you. He was the problem, right? Wasn't he the one choosing to be offended? Well, yeah, maybe, maybe not. But what difference does that make? What can I do to be a peacemaker and help maintain unity? As long as it's not a matter of, uh, of right and wrong, all right? It's something small. Why allow it to escalate? 
And I know, I know that doesn't come naturally. It's so much easier to say, well, it's their own fault if they want to be offended. Why should I change my actions just to please them? And Paul says, because it's the Christian thing to do. I know it's not the American thing to do, right? It's not the American way, but it's the Christian way. The bigger offense is the contention and disunity that's being created. Now, when the judges hear that, they pipe up and say, yeah, you should change your actions to keep the peace. But Paul turns back to them and says, hold on. So if somebody brings Coke to the ward party, is it really that big of a deal to just drink something else and not get all worked up about it? And, and you can stop judging how other people dress in church. If they're wrong, then that's between them and God, not you. Your job is not to judge, but to love one another. So Paul takes a very balanced, fair approach to solving these kinds of problems. Both sides have something to work on. And now, Paul has some advice for all. So I just read the following verses to my classes. Here's for everybody, the whole group. Chapter 14, verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. Only do things that make peace and edify others. 15.1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Bear their infirmities. If somebody's not living the standards according to what you think they should be living, they just might still be developing in their faith and their commitment to the gospel. Let's, let's bear with their infirmities as they grow. Not call them out to make ourselves feel better, to please ourselves. And now chapter 15, verses 5 through 6. Now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So be like-minded of one mind and one mouth and receive one another as members of the church of Jesus Christ. So the truth that I would highlight here, when disputation over living gospel principles arises, if I despise or judge others, there will be contention and division. But if I seek to be like-minded and edify and love others, then there will be peace and unity in the church. So like in the scriptures, have you ever found yourself on either side of this dynamic before? Have you ever found yourself judging? Have you ever found yourself despising? And if so, what could you do now to become more of a peacemaker? And a final suggestion before we conclude, there's a great video that you could show at this point that could help drive this point home. It's called A Friend to All with Elder Sawadis. And he does an excellent job of illustrating the importance of setting aside differences in order to create a community of unity and love. So I'll include a link to it in the video description below. So we've got despisers, judgers, or peacemakers. Which one are we? We should ask ourselves this anytime we find ourselves in disagreement at how things ought to be done in the church. Peace and unity are crucial in the gospel. And we can't forget what Jesus said, the way that the world would know that we were truly his disciples. And that was, if we had love one to another. If we're using our time and energy to fight with each other, then how can we expect to have the time or energy to fight our natural man? or the adversary himself. Instead of judging, may we bear each other's infirmities. Instead of despising, may we rejoice that our fellow members are living according to what they feel is right. And if we can do this, then I believe that our families and our congregations will be filled with righteousness, with peace, and with joy, which is what Paul wanted for the Romans and what I believe he would want for all of us. And that's going to conclude our, our lesson today. Thank you. Thank you for spending this time with me. I know it was just a little bit longer today. But gosh, these, these chapters just have so many 
great insights in them. Well, teachers, if you're interested in any of the resources that I make, uh, go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to those resources there. Uh, if you enjoyed what I had to share today or uh, found that it was helpful in any way, the best thing that you could do would be to share it with somebody else, right? On social media or with a family member or somebody that you know. Thank you so much for watching. Now get out there and teach with power.